This is Deep Dish from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, a weekly podcast going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, Vice President of Studies at the Council, and I'm here today with two distinguished trade economists. First, Gary Clyde Huffbauer, who is the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Welcome, Gary. Thank you. And also have Phil Levy, the Senior Fellow for the Global Economy here at the Council. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about President Trump's international trade agenda and focus on what he can do and what are the potential consequences of him pursuing what he's talked about. And we all know that international trade was really a centerpiece of the Trump campaign, and he blamed trade, bad trade deals with China, Mexico, other countries for factories leaving the U.S., job losses, lack of good-paying jobs, lackluster economic growth. Um, and he argued that that the existing trade deals were deeply flawed and in favor with our in favor of our trade partners and against the against the U.S. and since coming into office, he's signaled that trade is going to be a very high priority. One of his first executive orders was to formally pull the U.S. out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. He also announced he's going to work very quickly to renegotiate um, uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. To start off, I want to get your sense of how different is the trade policy that Trump is talking about from what we've had in the past? Because for a long time, the U.S. has pushed for a level playing field, has talked about workers' protections, um, environmental protections. So Trump's America First trade agenda, how different is that from more traditional level playing field agendas that we've had in the U.S. for quite some time? Well, it's totally different. This is a, a a new era. Um, so far, it's rhetorical. He has not put up any tariff yet. He has badgered some companies, uh, and that's new, but there are no new tariffs yet. Um, he hasn't withdrawn the U.S. from the North American Free Trade Agreement yet, uh, but the rhetoric is very clear. He doesn't want uh, these existing agreements, and if he does any new agreements, they will be bilateral, not multilateral, not plurilateral. And he clearly has an objective to use trade agreements as a vehicle for reducing the U.S. trade deficit with the world. The U.S. trade deficit is about $500 billion. Uh, If you could magically reduce that, uh, this is magic, but if you could magically reduce that, you'd get about 5,000 jobs per billion dollars of reduction in the trade deficit. So that's two and a half million jobs. Oh, that's a great number. You could have uh, wonderful uh, photo ops and so forth. Most of us economists are quite skeptical that he can achieve this goal, namely reducing the trade deficit through new trade agreements. But he can certainly create a lot of uh, headlines and havoc in the meantime. So I find myself in the unusual position of being the voice of sunny optimism here. The, uh, it, it's not quite as extreme yet as, as Gary says. Uh, he's right. There's the rhetoric, and what the, the rhetoric is extreme. I would note that if you go back, oh, I don't know, eight years, we had a new president who had promised to find China a currency manipulator who tabled 
signed trade agreements. Who this ha- would be Barack Obama. Yes, as a matter of fact, it is. Um, who had... Uh, Chicago boy. Who had talked about NAFTA killing a million jobs, an analysis that was based using that same kind of math on trade deficits. And... During, who during the campaign had claimed that either we would withdraw, that NAFTA would be renegotiated or we would withdraw. You do sometimes see a conversion in the White House. I'm not certain that we will see that, but hope springs eternal. Very, very good. So how much difference can Trump as president make in trade policy? I mean, I remember from my constitutional right. law days that it's, you know, uh, Article 1, Section 8 gives Congress the ability and the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations. I know, Gary, that you've written about the presidential mm-hmm. powers in international trade. What can Trump actually do on his own, and what does he need the support of Congress in order to do? Well, what we need to do is distinguish between uh, what he can do without being interfered by the courts and what he can do without Uh, having a tremendous congressional backlash. Those are two very different things. Because you remember uh, the Constitution very well. You're actually accurate. (laughs) Congratulations to your professor. Uh, Article 1, Section 8 does give power over foreign commerce and domestic commerce to to the Congress. However, over the last 100 years, the Congress has enacted at least, at least eight statutes that give the president a very broad authority to restrict trade. Not to liberalize trade, but to restrict. So he has this statutory power to really, you know, close the borders if, if he were to use the full, uh, the full force of them. However, uh, Brian, you're right. Congress thinks it has the first and last word on anything to do with trade. And uh, the president would be very ill-advised to take draconian steps far beyond what he's already talked about or already his announcements take draconian steps to actually restrict trade without getting a congressional say-so because they can come back at him on so many fronts. Can I ask you one of the things that puzzled me you you did the seminal work on this showing that these were out there. One of the things that puzzled me is whenever we've had discussions about fast track or trade promotion authority the lesson in the end was that Congress could delegate a certain amount to the president, but it ultimately had to be a congressional vote. That be, So if the president went out and reached a trade agreement, that was all well and good. Right. Congress could put some restrictions on itself, but in the end, it had to be a congressional up-down vote. How is it that all of this other legislation yeah. is not subject to that restriction? That's the big difference between liberalization and restriction. You're quite right. The, the Trade Promotion Authority and other bills of that nature They are liberalizing, or they give the president the power to liberalize. But those, Congress didn't want to give him an unlimited hand. They wanted him to come back and get approval. Oh, so Congress could have delegated had it wanted. This wasn't a constitutional restriction. No, no. This was just unwillingness. Oh, absolutely. In fact, in the earlier Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act, the Congress allowed the president to cut tariffs by 50% of their base level. Uh, Not 50 percentage points, but 50% of the base level uh, without... You know, that was that was a proclamation authority. Now, th- those days are gone now. And now the president has to come back to get congressional approval for liberalization. But these restrictive statutes, which I mentioned, there there's no congressional say-so. Now, so, the, uh, if I can, the, the one other thing is when you <coughs> heard the president speak yeah. on this, he often talks about tariffs in a different way than 
trade economists often right. think about them. We will talk about the tariff that you might apply MFN to the whole rest of the world, right. or maybe to a particular and country. MFN being most favored nation. So we use that everyone is essentially almost everyone's getting the same treatment. Um, but he has talked about applying tariffs to specific companies, yes. where if a company outsources jobs to Mexico, they will face a big tariff or a big border tax. Yeah, that's, I'm it. glad you mentioned that or raised that because that's one area where I think he might and could probably very well meet uh, a judicial restraint, that is a preliminary injunction. Why do I say that? Because none of these statutes, there are the, all these eight statutes we've identified, None of them say the president can name a company. It can name a country, and it can name a product or some kind of financial flow. All that's possible. But naming a company is not spelled out in the statutes. So I think if he actually did that, if he named Toyota, for example, I do think Toyota has a very good chance of getting a preliminary injunction on equal protection of the laws ground, the 14th Amendment, which the Supreme Court has applied to the federal government as well as the state, all state governments. And uh, this doesn't sound like equal protection of the laws. Now, to be very clear on this rather tedious constitutional (laughs) point, but it's an important one. In this country, a corporation is a person. So no more can Trump put a special tax on Phil Levy or Warren Buffett, two very wealthy people. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Then then he can put a special tariff, I think, on Toyota. Terrific. Let me ask about a couple of other things that he has talked about doing and whether he would have the authority Mm -hmm. to do it. So he's talked uh, about hitting individual countries that don't cooperate on trade with tariffs ranging 35 to 45%. Is that something he could do unilaterally? Oh, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And if he's willing to do it for just a short period of time, 150 days, there is a special statute to that effect, Section 122, I mentioned, of the Trade Act of 1974, which allows him to single out a country and impose a tariff of, of uh, up to 15% for 150 days. So that's not your 35%, but he does get to 15% for 150 days with no say-so. Now he can go to other statutes and he can jack it up to 35 45 50%. But, you know, the, the authority is there. Terrific. And how about for trade agreements? He's talked about we're either going to renegotiate NAFTA or we'll tear it up. Right. Can he unilaterally pull the U.S. out of NAFTA? Yes, because all these trade agreements, that would be NAFTA, our trade agreement with Australia, with Singapore, uh, and even our trade agreement with the world, the World WTO. Trade Organization. Yeah. Yeah, WO. All of them have termination clauses. And the very standard uh, termination clause is six months written notice to the other parties. And under the foreign affairs power of the presidency, it would seem that he's the one who can write the letter saying goodbye. Uh, now, it's not been tested and, you know, it might be argued. But pulling out of the agreement, that's very different than, than the implementing legislation. See, we have these agreements. That's our international agreement. And then... Then we have implementing legislation, which gives it the force of law domestically. What happens to the implementing legislation is, you know, not quite as clear. But in the case of NAFTA, if he pulls out of the agreement, the implementing legislation says that we no longer have uh, zero tariffs with Canada and Mexico. 
And it may be worth noting for the TPP in terms of the sequence and what actually happened that an agreement was reached yes. in October 2015 in Atlanta. Yes. They had a signing ceremony where the U.S. Trade Representative went down. This was in February of 2016. But it was exactly this <clears throat> implementing legislation that never went through. Right. So the, the president, then that's what he did this past week, was say, we are no longer in this. But you don't have the issue of implementing legislation because it never made its way through the Congress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you guys have pointed out that much of what's happened so far has been on a symbolic level. But, Gary, your comments about what is possible, he clearly has a wide range of latitude in what he could do if he chose to do it. One of the concerns that people raise if President Trump were to decide to exercise that leverage is that he could trigger a trade war which could actually be worse for the United States. What is, just what is a, a trade war and why should Americans worry about it? Sure, sure. And that, that is very important because uh, a trade war is where you get uh, retaliation by the other country. It could be Mexico or it could be China. Those are the two very much in his sights. Uh, does equal or worse things to the United States in terms of cutting off U.S. exports to that country or making life very difficult for U.S. companies in that country uh, than the U.S. did uh, to imports from that country. And I think this would be the big shock. Uh, a true trade war with Mexico, and especially with China, would, I think, truly rattle the financial markets. And I regard the financial markets as one of the um, uh, one of the restraints on any president. And actually, along these lines, I would highlight some other work coming out of the Peterson Institute. Uh, Brad Jensen um, did a very nice piece that people often think about, well, we've got our importers and we've got our exporters. And so maybe we do something where it you know stops the imports, but our exporters still flourish. What he showed using firm-level data was that there's enormous overlap between our top exporters and our top importers, mm -hmm. that these are often one and the same. In, right. in, a, in a majority of cases, they were one and the same. They were significant exporters with significant importers and importers with significant exporters. What that says is we live in a world of global supply chains, which means that if you start introducing disruptions, right, right. it's more than just, well, we'll just make the car here. It's supply chains can break down and you can have a much bigger impact than many people suspect. So for example, we don't have the transmissions we need to complete this car. Right. We don't have the capability to build the transmissions, so we, all we can produce is transmissionless cars. And, and the important get. thing there is that foreign countries, Mexico and, and China, might very well target uh, products made in the red states, those that gave Trump his margin of victory. So that's Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. And you can find firms that are dependent on exports to Mexico or to China from those states if you if you look hard enough, and they will look hard enough. And so suddenly, Trump's supporters uh, will find, you'll get these headlines, he would get these headlines of lost jobs. Well, and I think some of his supporters are already waking up to this with the TPP, that uh -huh. there was, there was supposed to get agricultural access uh, yes. for a lot of the red states, and they've all of a sudden realized that, that, that access, for example, to the Japanese market is not right around the corner the way it had once seemed. I would also note mm. this point about um, targeting very particular sensitive areas. This is not hypothetical. 
Yeah. We saw, for example, when the U.S. did not do what it had promised Mexico in trucking. Oh, yes. That you saw these with carousel tariffs yes, where yes, they yes. would rotate through and do exactly the sort of targeting that Gary described. So one last question on trade wars, which is with conventional wars, we kind of know how to understand whether or not there's a threat of war. You see troops being built up around borders. You have threats about about mm-hmm. invasion. You've got... Um, you know, acts of aggression. Uh, for those of us watching what develops on the trade front, what would you both look for to try to understand if a tense trade negotiation is heading toward a trade war that could evoke all the kinds of damaging impacts that you just talked about? Well, I think we've already seen some of this publicly, and I've seen heard some of it privately. Publicly, um, uh, President Peña Nieto of Mexico just said uh, that everything is going to be on the table. In the, in, if Trump does these things he's talked about, everything will be on the table. That would be drugs. That would be uh, stopping Guatemalan refugees from coming to Mexico to the U.S. Uh, you know, the whole relationship with Mexico would be uh, thrown up into consideration. Well, that's, you know, those are fighting words. And trade, of course, but these other things as well. So I think the talk is always the first part of it. Now, I have met privately with some Chinese officials um, last week, and they were very clear. I mean, these are senior officials. You know, the, they, will, they will retaliate. And China has a history of retaliating tit for tat. As long as, as President Trump... Uh, does small things, relatively small things. For example, putting on some more anti-dumping duties against China's steel exports. We already have a lot, put a few more on. Well, then the retaliation by China will be relatively small. But anything close to this, um, you know, he talked about a 45% tariff, but we don't have to go that far. Anything like a 15% tariff across all Chinese imports in the United States, the Chinese will do exactly the same. For my part, the thing I would watch for is any sign of spiraling, by which I mean you can have the sort of thing that Gary described. And a lot of what we've set up the trade system to do is to keep these things contained. Mm -hmm. So somebody transgresses, does a nasty trade action, somebody else complains, maybe they get to retaliate, and that's it. So we saw this, for example, President Obama put on tire tariffs, a subject Gary has written on. China managed to find something to do on poultry. Yes. <laughs> and then that was it. Then you're yeah. done. The thing that's really worrisome where you think you're getting towards a trade war is when these escalate. So that then that gets found with, well, you overdid it, and now I'm going to come back at you with something. And so rather than a sort of symbolic exchange of blows, this starts breaking into something that's sort of more bigger and bigger and more damaging. Yeah, Phil is absolutely right. And if we look at the history of retaliation, at least up to this point, it's been de-escalating rather than escalating. Uh, but, you know, this could be a new day. Terrific. Well, thank you both. I think it was very helpful to help give us a way to understand what are the possibilities as well as to understand the consequences of trade policy that Trump may pursue. I want to thank you both again, Gary and Phil, for joining this week. And thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Deep Dish. 
Please note the opinions you heard today are those of the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please share this episode with friends or family members that might enjoy it. This helps us build audience for the Council's work. You can find our show on iTunes under Deep Dish and also on the Council's website at thechicagocouncil.org. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll return next week for another slice of Deep Dish. Deep Dish.